You've heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. In the name of the living and true God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I was blessed to attend a small Christian liberal arts school in the Midwest called Wheaton College. Wheaton's motto, for those of you who know it, is for Christ and his kingdom. It is a Christ-centered school. It's the alma mater of, among others, the famous evangelist Billy Graham. And yet, my college years in spite of the fact that this is a Christ-centered institution, were marked by profound spiritual crises. And they remain one of, if not the lowest points in my spiritual life. This had nothing to do with Wheaton, per se, and everything to do with that post-adolescent combination of thinking that you know everything on the one hand, and then having no interest in learning anything new, on the other hand, a recipe for disastrous ignorance indeed. Thank God, I like to think I've grown out of that. But thankfully, I was surrounded by many faithful and gracious Christians, one of whom was my New Testament professor, Dr. Julius Scott. And I wrote him a letter towards the end of my time at Wheaton, ranting a bit about my views on institutional religion, what I thought about God and salvation, what it was all really about. And his response was very brief. He gently pointed out in writing that in my theological tome, I had failed to mention even one time the name of Jesus. Mind you, this was not with intention in my writing. And that simple observation was a significant turning point in my life. There are many religions, many views of God. There are many spiritual lenses from which we can make sense of the world. But the Christian faith is nothing apart from its namesake, our Lord Jesus Christ. It is as St. Paul counsels the church at Corinth, no one can lay any foundation other than the one that has been laid. That foundation is Jesus Christ. He is our foundation. There's a small condo unit that's being built in our neighborhood that I've been driving by the last few weeks, and I've been watching uh, as it's been developed. And first the land was prepped and then the forms were laid, and then the foundation was poured. The framing began, one story, two stories. Now they've tacked a third story onto this structure. No doubt it will be finished in the coming weeks with all the trimmings, the roof will get put on, the stucco, the paint, the windows, the doors. Then it will be inhabited. People will put pictures on the walls. Flowers will go in the windowsills. People will make it their home. And none of it would exist without that foundation upon which it stands. And the same is true with our Lord Jesus Christ. 
and this home that we call the church, the body of Christ. It is nothing without the foundation. We continue to move through our Lord's famous Sermon on the Mount in our gospel reading these past few weeks. And we encounter today what seems an impossible charge. Our Lord teaches, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And as I was pondering this week what kind of illustration could be used for this teaching, there's no doubt many faithful Christians throughout the life of the church who have loved their enemies, prayed for those who persecuted them. But it occurs to me that the greatest illustration comes from the foundation itself, it comes from the master himself. Our Lord not only teaches us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, but he fulfills this teaching perfectly on the cross. The cross is the illustration par excellence of this charge, of this divine love. Writing in the fourth century, one of the great Cappadocian fathers, St. Gregory of Nyssa, writes of our Lord's passion, shackles and floggings, blows to the cheeks, a face covered in spit, a back crisscrossed by beatings, an irreverent court, the cruel verdict, the soldier's mockery, sarcasm and cursing, the nails, gall, and vinegar. And all of those hideous things that were done to our guiltless Lord as repayment for his many and varied benefactions, how did he confront those who did all these things to him? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. St. Gregory goes on, could he not have brought down the heavens upon their heads or cause a rupture in the earth to swallow up his slanderers? But he suffered all these things with gentleness and forbearance and by his own example ordained that we should practice forbearance in our own life. Jesus, before he launches into this radical teaching, makes reference to the old law in today's gospel. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. He's referencing what is sometimes referred to as the law of retaliation, not unique to Judaism, but to religions of the world, and in fact feels much better uh, from the human perspective. It feels more just, the law of retaliation meaning a person who has injured another person ought to be punished in kind to a similar degree. It's just fair, right? In fact, this law was designed not simply to apply an equal measure of justice for a wrongdoing, but also to limit retaliation so that it would not exceed the offense. Its design is to ensure equity of consequence over an escalation. So its purpose is to prevent the vengeful response of, say, two eyes for one eye, or perhaps a mouthful of teeth for a single tooth. But the problem with trying to establish some equitable means of justice in a world that's filled with sin is that evil does beget evil. 
And once the cycle begins, we frankly are powerless to stop it. But it is precisely this cycle of evil that our Lord triumphs over on the cross. Speaking to this, the Anglican Bishop N.T. Wright says, Pride, greed, fear, arrogance, and ultimately violence, they stay in circulation. He's speaking of the cycle. They stay in circulation because when they operate, they create more of themselves. One person's pride begets another person's jealousy. One act of violence begets another. And don't we see this in the world? But in the case of the cross, he writes, the pride and fear and violence of all the world did their worst to Jesus. And he prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And in dying without bitterness, without pride, without retaliation, he changed the world. He acted out the victory of love over evil. Christian faith, the bishop writes, faith in the crucified Jesus is more than my individual belief that he died for me, vital though that is. It is the faith that on the cross, Jesus in principle won the victory over sin, violence, pride, arrogance, and even death, and here's the rub, and that that victory can now be implemented. Jesus did not simply die on the cross so that we don't have to. He didn't love his enemies so that we don't have to. He did these things as an example, and he enables us to do the same. He calls us to do the same. So that by the love of Christ dwelling in us, we are freed from our own pride, fear, greed, arrogance, and free in turn to be agents of Christ's reconciling love. Think of your absolute worst enemy. Usually not that difficult for them to come to mind. By the way, if no one comes to mind, talk to me afterward, you should be beatified. Think of your absolute worst enemy. Think of those who persecute you. (laughs) And now imagine that Jesus really and truly wants us to love them and pray for them. As disciples of Jesus, it is not good enough for us to throw in this towel and say, yeah, that's not gonna work for me. Every one of our enemies in this life is, here's one way of looking at it, a gift from God, because they are yet one more opportunity to exercise this discipline of divine love. Love that does not discriminate Love that is offered fully and equally to all. This is the imagery that Jesus calls forth when he says, just as the sun rises on the evil and the good, no discrimination, and the rain falls on the just and the unjust, no discrimination, so it is with the love of God in Christ, which extends in all of its perfection and glory to the whole world. This is the love that he calls us to. Our enemies give us opportunity to exercise this love. Writing in the 6th century, there's a a monk from Palestine named 
Abba Zosimos. He says, what sort of labor does praying for our enemies entail? Is it digging? Is it traveling on foot? Is it financial loss? No. We must be content when humiliated. That is the labor, he says. And in this way, we become as the holy apostles who went away rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer dishonor for the sake of Jesus' name. He's quoting from Acts chapter 5. Every enemy we have is an opportunity for us to love with Christ's love. Writing in, in the 10th century, there's a Byzantine monk, St. Simeon, the new theologian, who says, Do good to your enemies. Love them like friends, like real benefactors. Pray for all who want to harm you. Love everyone equally from your heart. These things will make you a follower of the Lord and distinguish you as a true icon of the Creator, a model of divine perfection. Yes, Jesus calls us to this perfection, saying, be perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect. And in the 18th century, an Orthodox monk named St. Nicodemus writes, we must adhere to the kind of love that moved the Master Christ to deliver himself up for our sake. Therefore, when we do good to our enemies rather than just our friends, which everyone does, Jesus tells us, we become true imitators of Christ our Master, since it was for the sake of his enemies that he delivered himself up. I share some of these quotes throughout the ages just to illustrate that this idea is something that the church has been wrestling with throughout the ages. It is so hard when we get hurt to not want to hurt back or retaliate. That is how we are wired. But such is the power of God's love in us that allows us to love our enemies. And in fact, it is in showing this divine love that Jesus says we are counted as children of God. Notice he says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you so that what? You may be sons and daughters so that you may be children of your father who is in heaven. This is how we live into our identity as children of God. Imagine that in our moments of deepest hurt and anger, that it is this model of perfection to which we are called, to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. The cross is the fulfillment of this charge to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. The cross is the perfect illustration of what it looks like when we do this. But the cross also makes it possible for us to do it. The question that we ought to ask ourselves continuously, how can our lives become their own illustration of this teaching and of this divine love? In the name of the living and true God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.